It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, here with Professor Christina Greer, also in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. And Alex Brooklyn, somehow in Manhattan. Hello. Hello. So, in a minute, we're going to have unlikely radical Ron Kim of the New York State Assembly and of Queens joining us. But before we welcome him on, Alex, uh, fill us in on what's been happening in New York this week. I guess some of the big stuff that happened this week, uh, let's start with cops. So Commissioner Shea defended a cop that allegedly pushed someone into traffic. The press has had a really hard time actually obtaining the footage from the traffic camera from the NYPD. This actually comes at a moment when State Senator Jamal Bailey and Assemblymember Catalina Cruz introduced legislation to hand the, quote, final word over to the CCRB, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, on some of the consequences for police officers that are involved in misconduct allegations. Just to recap, the CCRB, they would want to include five appointed members by the mayor, five by the city council, one by the public advocate, three by the police commissioner, and only the commissioner's choices would come from law enforcement. Um, There's a bunch of pushback on this from the NYPD. And right now, the CCRB, if they find someone to be guilty of misconduct, they can only make a suggestion as to what should be done. But As we've seen before, it's always up to the commissioner. So this would change all that. The mayor, you know, we get into this a little later in the episode, but the mayor has created yet another task force to make suggestions around dealing with sex work, sex workers, and the NYPD. But as usual, when Aaron from Politico asked the mayor to elaborate on exactly what would change He said he didn't want to see arrests anymore made for prostitution. But of course, there's usually other things like warrants and whatnot involved. Curious how the cops would know that if they're not bringing people in for prostitution. But, uh, you know, that's what comes out in the wash. (laughs) And past all that, of course, there's Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, So just after we'd finished recording this pod, Governor Cuomo reappeared with his latest last-minute conference call-only press briefing as the Emmy-winning TV guy is suddenly very camera-shy, at which he announced the end to Yellow Zones. No one even knew there were Yellow Zones anymore effectively allowed for fitness classes to reopen pool halls to open up, ripped New York City's crime problem again, a little bit to bash de Blasio, a little bit to say, I'm the indispensable man, and said he's not going to take any questions about the review of the harassment charges against him and other things by the assembly or related questions. So, That's where his game is at. More, of course, to come. In just a moment, we're going to have a radical on to talk about him. 
Here, if you will bear with me, is a quote from a speech rendered by that old political character, Elijah Cuddlestone. Now, I, I mean to say, uh, tell you that is, that this man is a radical. A radical, mind you. Why, talk about change. He's used enough platform planks, even planks, that is, in this campaign alone to build you a new courthouse. I say, a new courthouse. And still have enough planks left over to construct a warehouse for all of his past mistakes. Well, Elijah was a bit outspoken. And that's how he used the word radical. Radical comes from radix, the Latin word for root. Actually, today, radical isn't much more than a term of abuse. Before the 18th century, radical essentially meant a person who wanted to get to the root of a matter. Toward the end of the 18th century, a group of English politicos became known as radical reformers because they wanted to revamp the existing political setup. They became a hated crew because folks didn't like change. And radical became a term of low reproach. And of course, the biggest news of all. On Thursday, March 18th, the Newswoman's Club of New York is hosting a virtual event to talk about how to start a podcast. And I, Alex Brooklyn, will be one of the panelists on that. So you can find that. We'll send a link on our website. And you can find that the Newswoman's Club of New York. It's at 6 p.m. So with that, here's Radical Ron Kim. Let's jump right in. It's Wednesday afternoon. Governor Andrew Cuomo is in Harlem for a uh, press event that is closed to the press for public health reasons, uh, but not to 90-year-old political allies and FAQ NYC guests like Charlie Rangel. He seems to be uh, in a world of political trouble and uh, making it very clear he has no intention of going anywhere if he can help it as a result of that trouble. And joining us right now to talk about all this is Assemblyman Ron Kemp, who played a big role in starting the uh, snowball that's, uh, that's led us here. So thank you so much for joining us. And maybe you could start in some ways at the start and talk for a minute about this phone call uh, that the caucus had with uh, the governor's secretary, Melissa DeRosa, where she said, I totally would have told you guys about the uh, nursing home numbers, but then the Trump people would have done bad things with those. And I, I wrote in a column, I had the theory that this was a blackmail attempt, that if you don't say anything at that exact moment, that then that allows her to say later, hey, these people were all implicitly on board. And while you're here, I, I'd love your thoughts on that and how that conversation came about and how that leads us to uh, the moment we're at now. Thanks, Harry. First, thanks for having me on. I think, and I appreciate the column because that's exactly what I was thinking when I ultimately decided that I have to go public uh, with what happened. And my decision at that moment, but the moment she crossed that line, that conversation was no longer a private conversation. The moment that she implicated myself, other lawmakers, and the institutions of the Senate and Assembly as part of their cover-up, now we had a public duty to let the public know that this is what happened. If we do not do that, we were also we would have become complicit in the cover-up. But the reason why we had that meeting on Thursday, uh, or Wednesday, February 10th, was because for months they had stonewalled us um, 
for seven months since the August oversight hearing, when we had the commissioner, we had everyone in front of us asking the tough questions, why the numbers were deflated, how come we don't have the entire data set, what's going on in nursing homes. They kept deflecting. Uh, we have different softwares. We have this. They could not answer the questions. And they told us, we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. We're going to bring everyone, yeah, put it together, present it to you. That two weeks turned out to be seven months. Mm. And the only reason why they did it was because Attorney General Tish Ames issued her bombshell report. There was up to 50%, if not 60%, underreporting of nursing homes followed by a number of FOIL-related lawsuits. So they were required now to turn over all the data. And that's when they decided, you know what, let's bring in the chairs. I, I chair the Committee on Aging, uh, the health chairs um, from the Senate Assembly. And let's have a, a quiet meeting where we can soothe things over and perhaps get past this. Now, that was how it was set up. I went in, I was in Albany, and I said, hey, Mr. Speaker, or the, the main staff there, I'm in Albany. I do not feel comfortable getting on a Zoom call, I told them, <laughs> with, with the administration. They're downstairs. We're on the third floor. Can me and my other co-chair go downstairs for the meeting? The governor said, no, this has to be done virtually. Uh, we, there is no face-to-face. Meanwhile, they were meeting face-to-face downstairs. So why couldn't I just sit in a corner and just have a candid conversation? So... That was very telling, that they f- were very adamant about doing this over the virtual call. And they did not disclose that they were recording that call, which mm. no one told us, mm-hmm. right? So that those are all things that people, and Harry, this is, you pointed out, why would they record it without telling us in the first place? Because they eventually released the entire um, transcript. So Representative Kim, first of all, thank you for coming on today. Welcome to FAQ. It's been, you should have been on here a long time ago. That's our bad. Um, but I know today is incredibly busy because of what's going on nationally with the Asian American community. And so there's some reckoning that we're going to have to have as a nation that's well overdue. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. When we've talked about you on the podcast before, I've called you Hannibal Burris and the comedian. And I don't know if you're aware, but Hannibal Burris, the comedian, uh, relatively you know, doing well for himself, you know, he's got some shows and things like that. But he was at a regular comedy club doing his bit that he'd done several times before. And he essentially makes this joke about Bill Cosby being a sexual abuser, something that was an open secret. And then all of a sudden this snowball happens and Hannibal Burris is this catalytic moment that essentially brought down Bill Cosby. And that is why Bill Cosby is sitting in prison today. I feel like you're the Hannibal Burris of New York State because when you came out and said, I'm trying to celebrate the Lunar New Year with my family. All of a sudden, I'm getting these harassing phone calls. I got a lawyer up. Like, I can't, what, like, what is happening? I'm just trying to do my job. And you're like, this man is a bully and he's abusive and he uses women to sort of cover up his shenanigans and like, you know, his bad behavior. And it was, it was like a water is wet story. Everybody who's ever dealt with the governor or been in Albany knows that. But it was just, no one had ever talked about it. I mean, people had talked about it, but for some reason, you saying it so clearly all of a sudden became this moment where it was this intersection of the nursing home scandals and sexual misconduct scandals. And somehow Ron Kim is in the center. Like, all I said was this man's a bully and he was taping some phone calls. Like, how do you 
I know you didn't do this to be in the center of it, but how are you feeling essentially being the catalytic moment that has brought Andrew Cuomo to a reckoning where he's now shucking and jiving in Harlem talking about Hazel Dukes is my second mama and getting shots in his arm, you know, without the press. I mean, like all these things in the past few weeks have been bananas to see on sort of gender racial lenses. And, you know, he's also from Queens, right? You're from Queens. Shout out to Chrissy Greer. I'm from Hollis originally, so I do feel special affinity towards you and formerly Andrew Cuomo. Um, So I guess my long way of saying is this. How the hell did you end up as (laughs) the domino that essentially has brought down Andrew Cuomo in many ways? I'm not going to say that he's down and out forever, but 2020 is looking suspect slash grim. And you've got two U.S. senators, half of the Democratic Congressional Caucus, much of the Democratic Albany. You've got mayors, you've got citizens all calling for his resignation, largely because Representative Kim said, I think this man's a bully. And let me walk you through why. Well, it's not it wasn't just me, Christina. I mean, I think people forget there are 15,000 families in New York Mm. who (laughs) have seen the truth on the ground for months. I mean, these families, we're talking about from all walks of backgrounds and ideologies. We're talking about socialists, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, everyone have seen what was going on. And they were crying and screaming on the ground while Andrew Cuomo was in CNN, you know, cracking it up with his brother. They felt gaslit. You know, they felt, Mm -hmm. and I I had moments last year, you know, because I lost a loved one too. So I personally went through what that feels like to have someone in your family die in a nursing home of excruciating pain. It's not easy to die of COVID. Your lungs are shot and you're dying by yourself and you're asking them to go, uh, have you go because they don't want, you don't want to live through the pain anymore. It is not an easy process. And, and for so many families to go through that. And I've had moments where last year I would literally stop in a car and I would have break, I would have meltdowns. I would cry. And, I, and I'm not a crying type of person, but I don't know why I would cry because there's nothing else you could do when you see the truth and you see what's going on and no one seems to care. No one seems to be listening to you and you were elected to do a job, but you completely don't have the means to get that truth out there. So that's the momentum. I think the people that have have really backed up that moment where Andrew Cuomo did uh, start to go down, and 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 my my story and and how I push back uh, is more of a reflection of that larger group of people feeling uh, left out, feeling marginalized for so many months, uh, and it's also something that many of us recognize in his abusive behavior. Uh, all the lawmakers, all the media, all the journalists have to endure some of his abusive power for so many years. Uh, so to now see it in a very clear picture of what his abusive powers lead to uh, in terms of policies, in terms of people actually dying, unnecessarily dying, in terms of a cover-up, it was a very easy story for people to understand. And they immediately validated it. But it was a combination of very a number of different things. If I did not have people like Senator Biagi, Senator Yulin Yo, uh, Julia Salazar, uh, Jessica Rojas, all the new members that took on uh, establishment and won these progressive seats to step up, including like Zephyr's teachers in the world that have taken on the governor many years ago, Cynthia Nixon, uh, to people who have stepped up and said, yes, 
we, this is real. Governor Cuomo is not a good person. He is a not a good policymaker. He cares about big corporations overtaking care of the people. If all these validators didn't come out, I also wouldn't have had the outcome that we're witnessing now. I would have been on my own island uh, just screaming. But there was a there was a whole group, a coalition of people uh, from all spectrums of the political ideologies that came out at the same time. I have a cynical political question here, and then I want to get right back to Andrew Cuomo. So a lot of the people you mentioned, um, a lot of the people who were involved in this anti-IDC push and sort of changing the, the nature of the legislature have lined up behind Scott Stringer for mayor, understandably because he took a big political chance in backing that slate when it wasn't clear that that was a path to victory. That said – Scott Stringer, who's trailed in races before, uh, shout out to controller Elliot Spitzer, is way behind the candidate you endorsed, Andrew Yang. And I'm curious why. The way I keep thinking about it is y'all might bring down Andrew Cuomo, who is the tremendously powerful governor, but not be able to elevate Scott Stringer, the uh, the appealing but nebbishy controller who would like to be mayor. And, and that seems like such an interesting potential asymmetry to me. So, so I know you're, you're you're a player in the game, but if you were uh, if you were doing color commentary, I'd love your thoughts on that. Well, Scott's a good friend, and I wouldn't count him out. Uh, like you said, he was behind um, Elias Spitzer for that race. I did endorse Scott Stringer for controller, and honestly, I didn't think he might have come back from that. He was down by many points. He made a comeback, but I think in this moment, um, it's obviously a different dynamic. I think there are uh, other candidates, uh, for example, like Maya Wiley, um, have come out very strong against Andrew Cuomo. And I think as a result, she is picking up some steam. Uh, she also picked up uh, 1199 uh, around the same time. Um, so those those are factors. But I think, you know, I can't, I, I don't know, I can't really tell. Maybe it's because... We can only speculate at this point. Uh, maybe these endorsements of people who are on the ground against Como does not translate into the mayoral race. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's hard to dissect at this point, you know, because you know I've I've I supported Andrew Yang early on, uh, and he he was kind of he wasn't as strong as other candidates, but he still seems to be polling very well. So it's hard to make any assumptions about the impact of Andrew Cuomo in the mayoral race at this point. Can I follow up on that, Representative? Because, so, I've been rereading Andrew Yang's op-ed from the Washington Post from 2020. Mm. And we know that anti-Asian hatred has grown in this country. It's always existed in this country, but it's definitely grown in the past, say, four years and definitely the past year. And so, Andrew Yang has, in one of his op-eds, uh, talking about how, you know, with coronavirus, he was embarrassed to be Asian. And then the Washington Post, he says, quote, we Asian Americans need to embrace and show our Americanness in ways we never have before. We need to step up, help our neighbors, donate gear, vote, wear red, white, and blue, volunteer, fund aid organizations, and do everything in our power to accelerate the end of this crisis. We should show without a shadow of a doubt that we're Americans who will do our part for this country in this time of need, end quote. So do you also subscribe to this idea that as Asian Americans, if we're just nice enough and sweet enough and American enough, then people will like us and not be racist and not kill us. I actually publicly criticized him 
on that op-ed when it came out. Um, and he actually walked it back uh, publicly, uh-huh. I think a couple of weeks later, after the tremendous pushback by a number of Asian American groups and Asian Americans in the, in the country, because there's a big difference between um, competing to fit in versus belonging you know, in this city, state, and country. And that was my uh, point to Andrew Yang, that so many of us activists and so many of our public servants are in this space because we want our community to truly belong. Uh, We want ownership of our communities, of our futures. We don't want want to just feel like uh, we can just follow the right carrots and just fit in and feel continuously as second-class citizens as minorities. Like we want to be there for black and brown communities. We want to change policies where we can actually improve the social conditions for all of our communities, where we no longer are pitted against each other. That's ownership. That's changing the game. But fitting in is not changing the rules, but just saying, well, the rules are good. So we just want to go in and and get into the right college and get the right mortgage, get the right credit. And as long as we do our part, we can fit into the a broken economy and still succeed. Uh, that's the modern minority, I think, uh, Asian mm-hmm. elitist perspective of how to succeed in this country. And it's short-sighted because it leaves out everyone, including Asian immigrants, because mm-hmm. we, we forget like... The economic diversity. Exactly, because Asian elitist don't see the poverty in our own community. They don't see that one out of five Asian Americans live in poverty. One out of four Asian seniors live in poverty with mental health issues. Um, They don't see that when you walk down districts like mine, the food pantry line extends 15 blocks. They don't see, and it's mostly Asian American immigrants. They don't see the sex workers. They don't see the day laborers hustling on the corners because they don't have anything, anything else to do in terms of economic opportunities. They rather dehumanize them and shame them, invalidate them, and, and move away, celebrating the big condos going up and the big restaurants going up because that's how they feel validated. So we, I do have those uncomfortable conversations within my own community that Asian elitism also plays a, a strong role in how out, the outsiders of our communities perceive and treat us. If we invisibilize our own poverty, how do you expect others to see the struggles that we are going through in our own backyards? Yeah, I, I agree. That's what I was wondering if Andrew Yang heard you he heard in, me, in this conversation. He heard me good. That's why when, you know, he, when he first came into the scene, I invited him to my district and it was important because his motto is humanity forward. Uh, you know, when you see my, you know, my constituents who are on that line, pantry lines, when you see the migrant workers, um, I, I had to see for myself, like, do you see the humanity in these folks or do you treat them like any other uh, Asian American elitist? And I was convinced because he moved on a number of policies as a result of him spending time with me on the ground that he does, he does see value in, in all people. He does want to get to a better place. I think there's a lot more policies that he needs to improve on. And I'm constantly, I'm actually meeting with them next week to do some deep dive discussions about where he should be going in terms of policies. But I think he is open-minded. He's willing to collaborate and he's willing to, to move on certain things. So in, in that regards, I appreciate about his leadership.
it's sort of easier to move when you're not exactly attached to anything. So, you know, he's able to run for mayor because he ran for president. He had an idea running for president that was, that was compelling and just a little ahead of the political conversation. So then when you're a little in front, you get to say, I've been dragging this whole thing forward when some of that ends up happening. And that's cool. That, that's how you're supposed to play that position. But as a guy who's never run anything, who hasn't really been involved in our politics, so we had him on and talked about this, his ability to pivot from position to position, as you know, is, is much easier. But shifting gears for, for one second and going back to a few things you were just bringing up, I would like to uh, ask your thoughts on uh, this this massacre that just happened in Atlanta with uh, this murderer, Robert Aaron Long, who seems to have been targeting um, Asian massage workers. From the most recent information out now, and this is shifting, he seems to have been targeting them because they were, they were sex workers as opposed to specifically – uh, because of their race or ethnicity, but but plainly these things overlap in some complicated ways. And if you see that as related at all to what's been happening with this disturbing increase in attacks on Asians in New York City and uh, with the issues with uh, sex work and its criminalization here. Yeah, I think it's very interlinked. And I'm working with the group called the Red Canary Song who I just had a long meeting with this morning, and we will be organizing a community-driven, non-political event this weekend to provide mutual aid for migrant workers and sex workers um, in districts like mine um, to center some of the solutions around their needs. They're also raising money to try to identify some of the victims in Atlanta and to see if we can help some of the families who were directly impacted from the violence down there. Uh, but I think it's important to see how groups like that approach the problem instead of the knee-jerk reaction, which is to go lean into the police. So let's bring more policing to the blocks and more policing, uh, more surveillance on that block. But that's what happened many years ago when there was a sex worker who was killed in my district named Yang Song. And the immediate reaction was by the council member and, and, and the chair of the public safety in the council came in and said with the police and had a press conference and right in that district, we're going to bring more police to this block. That is exactly what we did not need because it was the targeted raids that led to uh, a, a police, a vice officer raping and assaulting and eventually leading to the death of that migrant sex worker who was running away from a rapist, jumping off the four floor balcony when she died. So, more policing is an easier reaction, but the real solution that we need to have these conversations around is how do we actually provide rights and, and access to uh, health care, education, to the police, to public safety? You know, that's what the workers need. But the more we say, oh, we just need to send more police and we need to save and play the savior role of these poor immigrants that are so primitive and they don't know what they're doing. We just need to save them from their misery. The more we are propping up these third party groups that are disguised as these good model organizations, but they're really in it for these multi-million dollar contracts where they can go in and use words like human trafficking to secure millions of dollars of funding and while we enhance more police presence in, in, in these communities. So again, this is, uh, it intersects with the racism against Asians, but it also connects with the long years of 
dehumanization of migrant workers and sex workers that my community has dealt with for so many years that haven't been properly addressed. Uh, so what happens when Donald Trump pulls the trigger and other, other GOP Republicans constantly talk about the China virus and how China is evil and we need to really boycott everything that China is doing? And how does that translate into real life on the ground violence? It triggers people uh, from communities of color who haven't had uh, a real job for for years, who haven't had paid rent in six months, or about to lose their homes. Now they are triggered. When they go out, they already have so much anger inside of them because of the unfair, unjust world of the conditions that surround them. And when, and these politicians constantly vilify Asian Americans. They are going out and they will take out their anger at the first Asian person that they see. That's what that's happening on the on real time every single day in my backyard. At the worst level, we're talking about mass massacres like a right wing type of person that already had deep seated um, hatred toward Asian workers. And why do they have deep seated hatred toward migrant sex workers? because of years of them normalizing certain sentiments against uh, sex workers and of Asian descent. So it's a combination of all those things that we need to address one by one. Ron, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what's been going on, particularly this week with Queen's DA, Melinda Katz, basically either sealing or completely dismissing a lot of the cases they had uh, for prostitution, uh, loitering, um, kind of in this citywide attempt to start walking us toward decriminalizing sex work. The mayor uh, yesterday, uh, Mayor de Blasio, you know, put out a plan. Again, a lot of his plans, in my opinion, are a lot of empty rhetoric, but put out a very nice bullet-pointed, you know, PowerPoint plan to uh, start trying to have cops arrest sex workers less, which is about all the specifics he actually could commit to. So we have uh, Melinda Katz in Queens kind of making this very substantive push, and we have the mayor uh, talking, you know, Decrim and the start of a lot of this was the young woman uh, Yang Sung who jumped to her death to avoid a undercover vice cop uh, and the access. As you were talking about, I just want you to to go in a little bit more about the access to some of those rights we see in Mexico City now decriminalizing sex work in the hopes of leading sex workers to have a closer and safer relationship with police. But if you could talk about a little bit about the mayor's plan, how you feel about what Melinda Katz did and other ways in which law enforcement, specifically in New York City, is it's just very hard to bridge those communities of sex workers and law enforcement right now. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, well, Melinda Katz is following, I think, the law that we passed. We repealed the walking while trans bill, uh, which is an outdated law police have used uh, to lock up trans and and, and and sex workers who look like they're uh, acting as a sex worker. It was an outdated law that we repealed recently, but I'm glad that she's immediately decided to take it on and 
and retroactively uh, release anyone who have been retained for those type of reasons. That's a step in the right direction. I appreciate it. Thank you, uh, DA Katz, for doing that. Uh, as for the mayor's plans, um, I don't think he is eliminating vice, which is what we called for. It's an unnecessary, I think, unit that do not need to exist, especially now that we're repealing these provisions that give them the teeth to go out and enforce and police these neighborhoods. And I don't believe, you know, we should be policing. We shouldn't even have anything that is related to vice as part of the police unit, period. Um, I think these are all decades of bad policies that have beefed up the NYPD budget by almost 50% in the last 10 years, you know, to justify uh, their work. Um, yes, we do want the police when we call 911, when we feel threatened to show up and protect us. But are they going to address sex work or our lack of economic opportunities? Um, all, you know, all the, all the things that should be handled through our education pipelines or other agencies that are much more capable of actually fixing the conditions behind um, the, some of these acts, the police should not be handling. So um, I, I feel like the tone is right by the mayor. He's, he is making a public statement that there, there is a problem uh, with the racist outcomes of some of these raids that the vice unit have conducted over the past few years, just like everything else. You know, why is it disproportionately targeting black and brown and immigrant communities? While we all know that well, sex buyers tend to be more white men, they're essentially untouched uh, when you look at the data that came out of the last few years of their work. So I'm glad that he's confronting it and he's acknowledging that there's a problem, but I believe the city council and the mayor must go further and eliminate vice and try to figure out how do we put that funding in somewhere else that's much more impactful. What about, uh, just just to follow up quickly on vice, um, having followed the defund vice movement since, you know, like 2016, 2017, are there proposals in place to address things like gun violence, gun trafficking, um, actual sex trafficking, or you know, alternatives that would bring in legitimate sex workers into the fold in order to help combat, you know, violent sex trafficking, uh, drugs and guns. Like as an alternative to vice, what sort of is the proposal there? I think we have plenty of, uh, you know, to federal government, to the state, to local, we have plenty of police experts that deal with real human trafficking situations. But a lot of it is ballooned to fit this narrative that every massage parlor or sex worker that we see are a victim of human trafficking because we did that by design. When you look at the human trafficking court, for example, the overwhelming majority of people that go through that are not victims of human trafficking. You know, they are sex workers that were told, do you want to go to jail or do you want to go to human trafficking court and get a slap on the wrist and do community service? And there's a whole ecosystem of attorneys and nonprofits that extract money out of that process. So there's a lot of people that rely on this pipeline uh, for their jobs. I get it. I understand that the, the policies led to the funding of these type of organizations, but some of those groups took themselves out of the equation because they realized after a few years, they're not actually addressing human trafficking. They're actually recycling a lot of these 
migrant workers who now have police records and they can never rejoin the former sector uh, for real jobs. This is what we're seeing in real time. Um, so I do not be, I don't think it impacts at all uh, the authorities' ability to crack down on some of the egregious human trafficking uh, incidents that occur around the world, which is not every single day. Um, I think we have plenty of resources to address that uh, without continuously uh, funding these agencies that actually do not deal with real human trafficking at all. So returning to uh, the Cuomo here, because he's horribly hard to turn away from. And, you know, there are some obvious reasons he doesn't want to uh, step down as governor. And he's sort of daring politicians who think they can to try and push him. Going back to the very original health order that said nursing homes have to take back in COVID-positive patients from hospitals effectively, you have argued that this is about following the money, that the uh, protections, the legal protections that were in place for both big hospital chains that have been large donors and nursing homes were the explanation for why that is. So I was hoping that you could elaborate on that. And then I have one other money question for you. And thank you again for uh, taking all this time. Sure. Thanks, Harry. So the March 25th, 2020 order was a unilateral decision by the governor to send, now we know, 9,000 COVID-positive patients who were untested to mostly unprepared nursing homes. I was on the ground at the time, and these nursing homes were yelling, uh, our staff has COVID, half of our people are out, we can't pause, we don't have PPE, we can't take these patients in. Um, out of the 9,000, 6,000 were new patients. Um, so these are people that went to a hospital from their homes for COVID, and then we referred to nursing homes as new uh, patients. 3,000 were, were returning patients from nursing homes. Instead of figuring out, okay, how do we create makeshift uh, locations to safeguard them? You know, we can use Jacob Javis Center. We can use a number of different facilities, which we had access to. The industry, uh, the nursing home executives, the lobbyists, the, the hospital lobbyists, the Greater New York Hospital Association, they represent hospital executives and nursing home businesses, wrote a bill and pitched the executive to give them a corporate legal immunity shield. So it's, it's, it's essentially what we call a get-out-of-jail-free card. You can't be criminally liable, and you need to, you need to really prove recklessness and gross negligence uh, to be sued by families. Around the same time, they banned every member from entering, family members going into the facilities while waiving medical record-keeping. They waived medical record keeping. So how am I supposed to prove gross negligence when I can't see my loved one and I can't see the real records of what's happening behind these nursing home facilities? That's what they, what the governor did in the last possible minute in the state budget of last year. He knew that if this was a standalone bill that came into our conference, it would have been laughed out of our conference. We would have never uh, change liability standards in the middle of a pandemic that protected the corporate interests over people's lives. They knew that. So they negotiated and the governor forced it into the budget where no one, 
Not even the chair of the health committee, Dick Godfrey, the longest serving member, and he reads everything. He did not have a chance to even read this part out of a 5,000 page budget. As you know, Harry and, and everyone, there's, this is what many places like do uh, in places like Albany around the country where powerful executives are able to do the bidding of special interests by manipulating the state budget, by putting in bad policies and sticking it in uh, on their on behalf of their top donors all the time. But he did this in the middle of a pandemic where these bodies that were being transferred actually represented higher reimbursements. So if you're a COVID patient, you're getting a higher reimbursement than a regular Medicaid long-term resident. So on average, I think $18,000, $20,000 more uh, a month. So there was definitely a financial motive. We're still waiting for the billings to analyze like, how much money the industry made uh, while they had a get-out-of-jail-free card where they were completely disincentivized to spend an extra dollar to pay for staffing or PPE. So what happens when 65% of the industry that are for-profit get a corporate immunity card while there, there's a bunch of new patients that are coming in that you know will yield higher profit margins, you're going to make a lot more money in that short period of time. Um, so we're still waiting for the billables, which the uh, the Office of Medicaid Medicare is supposed to report on every single year to fully understand the impact of those policies from last year. So I just have a quick follow-up because I think for a lot of our listeners, it's like, Okay, so what now, right? Where where does it, you sort of laid out where we are right now, but where do we go from here? And I think what made me so nervous about the nursing home story was if you're doing this to people's grandmas and grandpas and their parents and folks, many of whom have means, I'm actually really worried about our incarcerated population. If the governor has so little respect for families who have loved ones in nursing homes, what are we then doing with individuals citizens who were locked up in various prisons throughout the state. So can you tell us what you and your colleagues are doing to also keep an eye on that population as well, now that we've discovered what happened in the nursing homes? Yeah, so we actually had a a number of, not just me, but my colleagues raise uh, awareness around uh, COVID transmitting in prisons. Last year, we had town halls around it. We pushed the executive to release immediately people who are um, you know, 60, 65 or, or above uh, to make sure that they're they're safe and people underlying conditions could be protected. No response. Uh, he didn't, we didn't, he didn't even respond to any of our uh, messages at that point. Uh, but it's a good sign is that we are, we seem to be taking on bills that have been pending for many years. Uh, we just passed um, the Holt Solitary Act yesterday. And I'm hoping we can pass early parole and other measures uh, to make sure that our vulnerable populations in prisons could be released early and we, they could be reunited at their homes. And I don't know, people uh, actually do not notice, but I've been working with NYU, their race um, um, center, I've got the whole name, but they've actually been working with some big foundations to actually support financially some of the inmates that may be released early because what we see is that more, an average inmate has debt on about thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars that they incur. And the debt drives a lot of the 
bad activities once they're out of prison. So some of these foundations were already prepared uh, late last year to fully provide wraparound service to help with the debt and provide the necessary programming to make sure that they can uh, stay in their communities um, and be healthy. So there are so many partners that have stepped up to be part of this process. The only missing link has been the executive and the governor who have not uh, been a good partner in this process. So that's a perfect segue into our closing two questions here about the executive branch and then the legislative branch. So first, the executive branch. The other part of the money that I think you can follow is Andrew Cuomo's book that he evidently got something like a million dollar advance on. We know he got nearly as big an advance on his last book from the Murdochs that that his book sold like 12 copies. So it came out to like $3,500 a book. We won't have that number until April. And as I'm watching him fight the release of the nursing home numbers, whose release was inevitable, uh, Bill Hammond at the Empire Center had triggered this suit that was very likely to lead to the release. Um, Lawmakers were demanding these numbers. And I'm wondering why he's buying for time. The simplest answer I can come up with is that this was about uh, money and, and to some extent power is an overlap to that. And politicians being, like Batman said about criminals, uh, superstitious, cowardly creatures, you do what worked before. So you you control the information, you keep all this away, you get paid, you get the Emmy, and you figure the rest of this will sort itself out. So my question to you is, what was this all about money? And when I see Cuomo today doing a a, a, um, a campaign event, in effect, with politicians there, mostly uh, black politicians uh, vouching for him and saying, you know, represent and Cuomo's our guy, but it's closed to the press, uh, you know, as, as as a public health restriction. You know, has he been playing public health for profit over the last year, in your view? Yes. Um, I think the facts are clear. The timeline is clear. He not only lied through that private meeting through Secretary Melissa DeRosa about suppressing data, but now we know that the cover-up goes back to last year in July of a nursing home report where the Department of Health wanted to release the entire data set, but the governor's office ordered them to deflate that number. Four days after the report came out, he first announced the book that, oh, I'm going to write a book. And then a month later, it was official. And then in October, it was released. Uh, I've been calling along with many journalists to look at the actual contract to see what the terms of the deal was. Like, did he make any extra money for making the New York Times bestseller list? Well, how much money would he get if he sold 100,000 copies, et cetera? I believe, I think most people know that there are some terms that might have given him a financial incentive um, to cover up the numbers because even in the book, he mentioned the deflated numbers and he went out a number of times. Go ahead, Harry. You want to, and he definitionally knew the actual numbers at that point, since they were actively fighting to keep them out. So he wrote in the book numbers he knew would later be exposed just to hammer that home. Right. And, and that is textbook definition of fraud. Uh, Basically when you're a public official, when you have the soapbox and you issue a report in a book to point to the wrong number 
you know, sure, you might have a footnote in the back of the report saying, oh, it's actually the hospital numbers weren't added, et cetera. But when you're purposely directing all the eyes to the wrong number, that is fraud. Mm. That is fraud. That is, that is a crime. And he needs to be held accountable because guess what? Guess, guess what happened as a result? He took away our right to legislate. If we had the entire data set, we could have repealed corporate immunity back then. We had the reasoning. We've had the Guardian, we had New York Times, we had, so everyone was starting to pay attention and calling out the toxic bill. So we had momentum and all of a sudden the numbers deflated, right? So that's that's another monetary incentive uh, to protect its donors. The hospitals, nursing homes did not want to lose their corporate immunity. By deflating the numbers and Como going out, it's not that bad. We're number 45 out of 50 in the, in the country. We're not that bad. We no longer had the reasoning and the public support to repeal a corporate immunity and hold these facilities accountable. So I think those are two main factors that the timeline uh, matches up. But I think the investigations uh, if will reveal the actual reasons of uh, motives uh, that will be validated as a result of investigations. And very last question here. Speaking of toxic things coming out and lots more. So there was just a meeting of the caucus that Melissa DeRosa was not at that was leaked to a uh, Hunter Walker over at Yahoo. So a few little things about that. My theory is these things are coming out now a little bit because of technology and Zoom. And a lot because Democrats run everything. So the fights are within the Democratic Party now as opposed to between parties. So the omerta that for better and mostly for worse, it categorized the, what happens inside the caucus and the will of the caucus is slipping. In that meeting, your colleague Jose Rivera said this could happen to anybody. What's happening to Cuomo can happen to all of us. It could happen to any one of us and saying he backs what Carl Hasty is doing. This is funny for, for those of us who remember things because Jose Rivera w- w- was in one of those lawmaker trips to Puerto Rico where everyone gets drunk, gets high, parties, and you know sometimes goes after their staff, even though it's south of Bear Mountain, uh, many years ago and then gave Cuomo's apology. Like, times have changed. Uh, I never did anything truly inappropriate. I'm sorry if, if the words I said, you know, which is look at that one's behind and things like that were, were misinterpreted. So – it's interesting for, for me to see all this now, and this is happening, and what Rivera was referring to was Cuomo flat out saying, speaking of blackmail, hey, I got Jacob, the nominally independent ethics review board that he largely controls, and if y'all keep coming at me, I'm going to release everything I have on all of you. And I think I speak for most observant New Yorkers who are aware of all this. When I say my response to that is 50% fuck you and 50% fuck yes, because he is not the only creepy person in Albany, or perhaps even the most creepy. So my questions to you here are, one, is it appropriate for people to ever be leaking outside of the caucus that way? Or should all that stuff always stay inside the room? And two, what do you make of Cuomo's threat there? Uh, Is that just vile politics? Is there some merit to that if other people have done things that, that are really wrong, that have been swept under the rug? What should happen in terms of a real accounting in Albany? And again, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. I know that's a number of questions, but I, I hope you can at least touch on each. Yeah, thank you. Um, I can't speak on behalf of other colleagues, but uh, I have no uh, qualms about publicly saying whatever I have to say in a private conference room. I have nothing to hide. Um, and I think 
most people should act that way. Like, and especially <laughs> this is a virtual Zoom call. Like, how could you not assume the others aren't listening in? I mean, I think you, I think you should assume that whatever you say in these remote meetings will be reported out. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the logical way of looking at uh, how you conduct yourself as a public official. Um, but by now making this about leaking and demonizing who are, uh, you know, people who are not protecting privacy, we're actually distracting the conference from the larger problem in front of us, which is Andrew Cuomo. And I think we are allowing him to change the narrative and allowing us to be divided when we should be exclusively focused on how do we hold this executive accountable and create a co-equal branch of government. So it is distracting uh, the way that we are moving forward. And as far as others, and there's a lot of people speculating, right? Why did Andrew Cuomo say that at a press conference about Jacob and releasing everyone's, you know, dirty laundry? You know, a lot of people are assuming things and speculating things. I mean, my message to any of my colleagues who may feel implicated, maybe it's time for you to go. I mean, if you feel like your values and morals are compromised in this hour, maybe you're not fit to be in a position to make decisions for the people of New York. And I, and, and some of them may be my friends, but I, I didn't sign up to protect friendships. You know, I, I signed up to protect the people of New York, not one politician. So, you know, and, and what are we saying? to the staff members and to the woman, to the, to the, to the survivors, you know, when our first instinct is to go out and say, well, what would happen, you know, if it happens to one of us, like we, we are completely undercutting um, the the credible allegations that came forward by uh, the courageous woman. And I think it does have an impact on other aspects of the culture around Albany, because now other staff members, other uh, victims who may have felt like, oh, this is my chance to transform Albany. I can speak up bravely and I can be part of the system moving forward. Now they're going back into the shadows uh, when there's a lack of leadership. So all those things are very serious. And I think every single person who has a soapbox have to be extra careful in how we uh, portray ourselves and how we communicate internally as well as externally. On a city level, literally the opposite of the sentiments we heard from Ruben Diaz Sr. a couple of years ago, which was, I am not a rat. <laughs> uh, an Albany guy went back to the, uh, to the council for them. Um, uh, the Diaz family will be another episode. Uh, Assemblyman Kim, th- thank you so much for uh, coming on and taking all of this time with us. We really appreciate it and uh, hope that we will be uh, talking again, maybe in a very different Albany, maybe in a, an Albany that looks a lot like this one. We're going to find out. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Christina. I'm, I'm actually Alex. curious yeah. to see what yeah. Assemblyman Kim's next steps are. Oh, I, I am very happy. And, and, and if I wanted to advance... Politically, I probably would have cut deals with Cuomo, you know, a long time ago. You know, instead instead of calling him out, probably would have wrote that statement. Uh, so he probably would have made me a Congress member by now. I mean, that's the problem. That's how Albany works, right? Like, if you want, if you care about your own personal political career, you have to 
shake hands with people like Como, but you know, I'm not, you know, I'm very, uh, this whole thing, as much as I love being on your podcast, I'm a very uh, introverted person um, and I enjoy my time with my three girls. Uh, so I'm pushing myself to be out there because if I don't do it, then I feel like the people who do not have a voice, 15,000 families don't have a platform. So I'm constantly trying to push myself, but you know, hopefully we get to the truth very soon. I don't think well, we can afford the rights. I don't think we can afford the rights. We've got a uh, dirty laundry and keep on pushing now. So you've got my jukebox doing Curtis Mayfield as we've been talking. Listen, fortune favors the bold. I'm saying some stuff here in this podcast. It is March 2021. I have a feeling we're going to see some interesting things from Assemblyman Kim. I'm a betting woman, as you all know. I'm just going to put that out there. Thank you so much for coming on FAQ NYC. We appreciate you, especially uh, on such a tur- in turbulent times, and we really appreciate the time you've given us. Thank you, Christina. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week in the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest this week, Assemblyman Ron Kim of Queens. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>